Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we praise you this morning for the cross. The power of the cross. Son of God made sin for us. And that is our hope. That God so loved the world that he sent his son to become sin for us. To bear our shame. To bear our sin. To pay our penalty. And to give us life if we will but believe. What a privilege it is to be in Christ, to be able to come before you and to call you Father. What a privilege it is to know that for those of us who are in Christ, you've given us your Spirit in us. You've given us your Word to guide us. And this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, may your spirit work within us through your word. May you accomplish your purpose. May you challenge us. May you convict us. May you change us for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Malachi 3. Malachi 3 will be in verses 6 to 15. Malachi 3, 6 to 15. We've been working our way through Malachi the last several weeks, and it's kind of a depressing book. It's encouraging because we see who God is, we see God's faithfulness, we see God's forgiveness, we see God pursuing his people, and yet it's so discouraging because we see the continued failure of his people. Reading through Malachi, studying Malachi is like watching someone Someone who just continues to make the same destructive mistake over and over again. And they're not connecting the dots. They're not realizing that this is their own doing. If they would simply stop, if they would simply change. It's like reading Malachi. It's the people, the rebellious heart is displayed through their reactions to God. As we come to this passage this evening, morning, I'm stuck on this evening for some reason. As we come to this passage this morning, as we work our way through here, we'll see at the very beginning, God says, I have not changed. And then in contrast, you have changed. And then as we move into verses 10 to 12, we'll see, I will bless you. And at the end, but you refuse to be blessed. First thing we see here at the beginning is God's pronouncement, I have not changed. This is who I am. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. See, this truth, the truth of God's immutability, the truth that God does not change, it is true in general of God. It's true of His character. He is a God who does not change, and that is good news for us. But the focus here in verse 6 is specifically in the fact that God does not change in His covenant that He has made with His people. And that is good news for covenant breakers. 
See, in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Exodus 19-24, God has made a covenant with these people. I will bless you. And God keeps covenant. When God makes a covenant, God keeps a covenant. So as we come to Malachi 3.6, although Israel has taken their, their, has shown by their actions a desire to be uncovenanted with God. They have shown by their actions that, that they don't care. They, they don't want to be covenanted with God. They're showing by their actions that, that they have changed. The promises that they made back there, they're no longer holding themselves to now. And yet despite that, God does not change. There are consequences to their change. There are curses that are built into this covenant. And yet, because God does not change, the blessings are always possible if they will but return. That's what we see here in, in, in the beginning here in Malachi 3.6. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I do not change. You're, you're, you're experiencing my, my curses right now because you have left. But because I do not change, the blessings are always possible if you will but return. That's what we see here. I have not changed. I am who I always have been. My word has not changed. My promises have not changed. The problem, as we see, as we get to verse 7 through 9, is that you have changed. Verse 7, in contrast with the fact that God has not changed, they have changed. In fact, they have a continued pattern of rebellion. Look at verse 7. Yet, from the days of your fathers, all the way back even to the patriarchs, when I first made the promises, from the days of your fathers, from the very beginning, you have gone away from my ordinances. You've not kept them. From the very beginning, you've been a rebellious people. Return to me. And I will return to you. Return to me. They must make the first move towards God, towards reconciliation, because it is them, not God, who has left. From the very beginning, from your fathers, you are the ones who have left. You are the ones who have gone away. You are the ones who have not kept them. I've not changed. So come back. I'm here. I'm waiting with open arms. I will receive you. Just come back. is the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? At your first reading through this and you come to this question, this seems to be the first question that has a sign of, of, of repentance, of remorse. It seems, okay, finally, maybe finally God is getting through to them. Maybe finally they are going to turn and they are going to obey. However, the context and the original grammar reveal that rather than a repentant heart, this reveals a hardened, rebellious heart. You see, their question here is not, what can we do? 
It's not like the, the repentant sinner who comes to Christ and says, what must I do to be saved? This is the rebellious heart that says, how can I return when I haven't left? They don't see anything wrong with themselves. They are still clinging to the false narrative that it is God who has left them. It is not us who have left you. We see that narrative all the way through Malachi to this point. You remember in, in chapter 1. What is their complaint? Why don't you love us, God? We've loved you. We've kept your commands. Which in itself is laughable. Why don't you love us? Why aren't you blessing us? The problem, they're putting the blame on God. Last week, at the end of chapter 2, their complaint, where is the God of justice? You say you're a just God, where are you? Where's your justice? Evil is flourishing. You have left us. And here at the beginning of chapter 3, as it seems that, that maybe they're starting to get it, in reality they're simply saying, how can we return if we haven't left? You're the one who has failed us, God. They are shaking their fist in the face of God. In what way shall we return? How can we come back when you're the one who's left? The Lord responds through Malachi by pointing out an example that's undeniable. You cannot honestly dispute the fact that they have not been obedient in their tithes and offerings. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. You have robbed me. It's a physical example. It's something that they can't deny. If you're honest with yourselves, you know whether you're giving your tithe or not. And here God is calling them out. You've robbed me. Again, like children who need everything spelled out for them, they respond, well, how, in what way have we robbed you? And tithes, and offerings. Therefore you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. You're experiencing the, the curses of this covenant because you have robbed me. By not giving their tithes and offerings according to the covenant that they had agreed to, they're robbing God of what is rightfully His. It is His. And they are not giving it to Him. Therefore, they're experiencing the curses of this covenant. It's a very concrete example. You are the ones who've left. You want to know why you're not getting blessed? Look at this covenant we made. I will bless you as you obey, as you follow. You haven't done that, therefore you're not being blessed. Now what about tithing in the Old Testament? A tithe is 10%. And these offerings, sometimes they're commanded, sometimes they're free will. So tithing in the Old Testament is 10% of seed, of fruit, and of flocks to God for temple expenses. We see this in Leviticus 29, 30-32. Deuteronomy 14, 22-24. 
Numbers 18, 21 to 24, and Nehemiah 10, 38 and 12, 44 kind of clarify how this 10% that goes to God is used. It's given to the priests and the Levites. It's given for temple purposes. And then in Numbers 18, 25 to 28, we see that, that the priests and Levites don't get out of, of tithing. In fact, they tithe on the tithe that is giving to them to the high priest. And then there's even more that you can get into. There's more tithes. Every three years, there's a tithe. In reality, the tithe that, that is 10% ends up adding up to almost 20%. But it's all a part of this covenant that they've agreed to with God. At Sinai, they would give. As the tabernacle, as the, as the, the temple eventually is set up, this is, this is given for these expenses. It's part of God's plan. It's something that they've agreed to, and yet it's a very concrete example of how they have left God. They're not doing this. We agreed to it. And you're not doing it. Therefore, you're experiencing the curses of this covenant. Reality is that the, there's irony here. Because what have we seen in the first two chapters of Malachi that it's, it's the priests who should be teaching them, who should be leading them correctly, are leading them astray. And the people are following. And so the whole nation has gone astray. And yet the irony is that if they would have simply obeyed God, if the priests would have obeyed God, if they have led the people to proper worship, to proper tithing, who does that tithe go to? It goes to the priests. So the priests are complaining about not flourishing, and yet they're not flourishing because they're not doing what God has said. There's irony here. And so the clear conclusion is, you are the ones who have changed. You are the ones who have left. I set this up. I am still here. I have not changed. You have changed. You come to verses, well, the last word of that verse, even this whole nation, this is a rampant problem. This is the whole nation that has changed. They have left. And remember verses 6 to 7. Malachi is using this as an example of their rebellious heart. Your failure to obey, your failure to give, your failure to tithe. Is a reflection of your rebellious heart. You may have said, well, tithing is just a little thing. It's not that big. We're still bringing our, our offering. We're still bringing our sacrifices. Why does that 10% matter? It's a little thing with massive implications, though. It's a little thing that reveals your heart towards God. As you come to verse 10, we see the nature of this unchanging God. The blessings are still there. You're under the cursings, but if you will but come back, you will be blessed. 
Return to me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. Test me. Test me. You think that I'm the one who's changed? You start obeying, and then let's see. You start obeying, and then see if I will keep my word. Test me, says the Lord of hosts. It's a unique word where God uses that idea there to test me. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, what he's saying here is, I will. If you will but obey, if you will return to me, I will open for you the windows of heaven. I will pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Devourer, that's, that's pests. Those who, who eat the fruit of the field before it can be collected. I will keep the pests back. They will not devour the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And he can say that because he is the Lord of hosts. Because the Lord of hosts has power not just over the armies of heaven, but over nature itself. You see, the failure of your crop is, not by, the, is by the hand of an almighty God. It's the curses of God because you have failed to obey. And yet that same God will bless you. He will cause you to prosper if you will but return to Him. In verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed. They will all see this. This, this is your purpose. They will see the obedient people of God flourishing and they will call you blessed, and they will call me blessed. You will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I will bless you if you will just come back. And unfortunately, in verses 13 to 15, we see this. I will bless you, but you refuse to be blessed. See, God says, your words have been harsh against me. Anyone with eyes to read or ears to hear Malachi can attest to this, right? We've seen this throughout this. These, these, these questions they are asking God as they are shaking their, their fist in God's hand, blaming their problems that come as a result of their actions on God. You've been harsh against me, says the Lord. And yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Have you not listened to what you say? Are you that blind to your own sin, to your own rebellion? You've said, it is useless to serve God. Verses 14 to 15 is their, their, their attitude as spelled out. This is their entire attitude that we've seen here in Malachi. They say it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up to even tempt God and go free. They've gotten so 
twisted in their minds that they are saying, what use is it to serve God? It's pointless. And they're not realizing that the whole reason they're struggling is because they're not obeying God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance? I think therein lies the issue. What profit is it? That's not the right question to ask when it comes to worship, when it comes to obeying. What profit is it? Their entire view of their relationship to God is about what they can get from God. Rather than giving to this God, this Lord of hosts, Yahweh, rather than giving to Him the worship that He deserves. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance? Again, that's laughable. No one can look at them and say, you've kept it. They're so blind by their own sin that they do not realize that it is they who have left God, not God who has left them. We call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. Wickedness is flourishing. And again, they turn to the idea of chapter 2, verse 17, where is the justice of God? They even tempt God and go free. The wickedness are flourishing. They stand up and they shake their fist at God and then they walk away as if nothing happened. Where is your justice, God? Where are you? As we see in verse 6, God stands ready to return to them if they will but return to Him. For God has not left. God has not changed. As we come to the end of this passage, I think there's several truths in here for us. You see, many people will twist this passage and they'll say, look, see, if we will but give, God will bless us. Many who, who preach a prosperity gospel will come to Malachi 3 and they will look at this and they will say, look, God promises blessing to those who give. And that's to twist this passage. Because this passage is tied specifically to a people who have a specific covenant with God. We, as the church, are not part of that covenant. But there's truths that we can learn about God and sin from this passage. God is faithful. God does not change. God did not change for them. God has not changed for us. He's a faithful God who keeps His Word. He's a merciful God. He's a patient God. I don't think you can read Malachi and not see the overwhelming patience of God. The mercy of God. The grace of God. Yet another principle we see is sin. How blind they are to their sin. And it has to ask, make us question, how blind am I to my sin? How many times do I question God when the problem is not God, it's me? We see, consequence of sin. 
They're facing the, the curses of this covenant because they are choosing to sin. We see the foolishness of sin. There's no benefit to it. I think we also see truths about worship. You see, this, this giving, this tithing was set up, connected to the temple. It was part of their worship of God. And I think the truth that we see here is that worship reveals your heart. Their failure to obey and worship to give revealed their heart about God, what they truly believed. It revealed their attitude of what profit is it. Worship is not about getting from God, but giving to God. You know, it brings up another question. It's the subject of tithes and of offerings. I think it brings up the question for us, what about giving in the New Testament? Is the Christian commanded to tithe? I think the answer to that question is no. The Christian is not commanded to tithe. I think it's very clear that tithing was set up by God for Israel in a covenant relationship. It had specific purposes. It was tied to temple worship. It was under a covenant between God and his people. A covenant that we are not a part of. And so then the next question is, is the Christian, if I'm not commanded to tithe, why do I give? Am I commanded to give? And the answer to that is overwhelmingly yes. You see, tithing as a command is tied to Israel. But tithing as a principle exists on its own outside of that covenant. It's a willing response. We see this in, in the Old Testament. Abraham and Jacob tithe in different situations before the law was even given. So tithing exists as a principle, as a response, outside of the law. But as far as 10% given to God, that's inside a covenant. But beyond the principle of tithing as a response, Christians are commanded to give. We're commanded to give to the poor, to those in need. Galatians 2.10. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. 2 Corinthians 8-9. The Christian is commanded to give to those who are in need. We're commanded to give to those who preach the gospel, to support gospel ministry. Matthew 10.10. 10. 1 Corinthians 9, 6-14. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18. In Acts, all throughout Acts, we see different churches supporting other churches. We see churches gathering money to send to the poor in Jerusalem. We see the church sharing together, giving to each other. We see the Philippian church supporting Paul, his gospel ministry. And perhaps 2 Corinthians 9-7 sums up giving in the New Testament. Let each one give as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give as God has blessed you. 
I think there's a principle that we see here in Malachi 3 that we also see in the New Testament. God not only gives us the reason to worship through giving, he gives us the means to worship through giving. Have you ever thought about that? God gives you the reason because he's God. Because he died for your sins. Because he loved you and he sent his son. Because he's merciful. Because of who he is. He is the reason to give, to worship. But then he's also the one who gives you the means. He's the one who, who blesses you with the means to worship through giving. And whether he gives you a lot or a little. You're responsible for what he gives you. You're responsible to give as you are able. To support the gospel ministry. To give to the poor, to those in need. Not under compulsion. If you're asking the question this morning, how much do I have to give? You're asking the wrong question. The question is not, how much do I have to give? The questions are, how has God blessed me and how much can I give? You see, we serve a giving God. And we must be a giving people. We see that principle here in Malachi 3. Look at all that God has given his people. In chapter 1, he reminds them, I called you. I set you apart. I have blessed you in ways that I have not blessed other nations. Look what I have given you. He's a giving God. And if you ask, well, what has God given me? Look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Look to your sins that have been washed away by faith in Christ. Look to the gift of the Spirit that He has given you, to His Word that He has given you. He has blessed you abundantly. 2 Peter 1 said, He's given us all that we need for life and godliness. And so the big overarching theme here in these verses is simply this, that worship is giving to God what He deserves. That's what they failed to do. They had made a covenant with God and they failed to give him what he deserved. And that's what you and I do when we fail to give. See, God has blessed us. And although we may not be under the law where we have to tithe, we are called to give. We're called to support gospel ministry. We're called to give to those who are hurting, to those who are in need. We're called to give as we are able free will, joyfully, 